All right, let's open our Bibles this morning. We're in Genesis chapter 20. We are studying the life of Abraham. We're doing it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We find ourselves in Genesis 20. Open your Bible or navigate on your uh, electronic device. I mention that now because some people say, you know, Pastor Gene, I've got my phone or, you know, and and people just think I'm playing games on Sunday morning. Uh, And so they've asked me to say that it's okay to to use electronics here in the church. I know it's pretty radical, you know, but uh, now if you see somebody and they are playing Angry Birds or Word with Friends, uh, I want to know about it. Uh, But uh, because they're not playing me. Anyway, so uh, Genesis 20 is our text, verses 1 through 18. The topic, Abraham once again asked Sarah to tell everyone she is his sister. And so, of course, the title of our message is Sister Act 2, Back to Old Habits. Let's have a word of prayer. It's the only possible title for that. But anyway, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your word. We want to approach it. Uh, with the understanding that you are speaking directly to us as a fellowship and as individual Christians, and perhaps, Lord, as individuals who don't know Christ. We believe that there is power in the word and that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. All I know to say this morning, Lord, is to do whatever you want to do in our lives, revealing yourself to us, your love and grace and mercy, the forgiveness of sins, All of those things, Lord, that only you can do. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Dilbert, a comic strip known for its satirical office humor, its creator, Scott Adams, asked the readers of his blog to, and I quote, describe your own job in one sentence, preferably in a humorously derogatory way. That'd be a good exercise for you. I can't do it because I love my job. But uh, anyway... Well, you don't have to react to that at all. You can just act like I didn't say that. Here are a few of the responses that he received. Listen to the description and then think to yourself what the job could possibly be. Be a human napkin. That's a stay-at-home mother of three. Uh, These are people who they are describing their own job. Here's one. Talk in other people's sleep. College professor. Copy and paste the internet. Student. Then here are my two favorites. Run away and call the police. Security guard. (laughs) And then this one. Think this one through for a minute. Make food that is just as healthy before it goes in your body as when it comes out. Fast food employee. I don't want to work with any of those people, by the way. We encounter a spiritual job description in our text this morning. It's in verse 7, where you'll read God saying to Abimelech, Abraham is a prophet, and he will pray for you. As a prophet, Abraham was to speak to men about God. As one who prayed, Abraham was to speak to God about men. The twist is that initially Abraham utterly fails to pray or to prophesy. God sticks with him, and Abraham eventually carries out his assignment. This obviously has application for us. Part of our job description as Christians is to pray and, as we'll see, to prophesy. Like Abraham, we can and we do fail, but God sticks with us and we can be renewed to faithfulness. 
I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God is gracious in your failures to pray and to prophesy. And number two, God is glorified in your faithfulness to pray and to prophesy. Let's take a look at our failures first in verses one through eight. Prayer is communicating with and communing with God. An important aspect of prayer is to intercede for others, to speak to God about them. In his farewell speech, the prophet Samuel said to the Israelites, and I quote, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. It was part of his job description as a prophet to pray for God's people. It was an important part and a blessed part, uh, but he considered it sin if he didn't do it. Now, you may think I've gone too far by suggesting that you and I are to prophesy. To prophesy literally means to speak for God or to speak forth the word of God. The Bible describes the office of a prophet, the gift of prophecy, and then it describes every believer in Jesus Christ speaking for God or speaking forth the word of God. Now, certain individuals in both the Old Testament and the New Testament were identified as prophets. I said it was an office because the New Testament clearly indicates that once the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church, their unique office ceased and the responsibility for leadership now rests in other men, pastor, teachers, elders, and deacons. And so, especially in the book of Ephesians, as you're reading, Paul talking about the, this glorious organism, the church of Jesus Christ. He says it was established on the certain foundation of Jesus Christ by the apostles and prophets. And then he goes on to talk about pastor, teachers, evangelists, and later in his writings, elders and deacons, those men uh, are the ones who have offices in the church now. There are no prophets. So if somebody comes to you and they say they are a prophet, that they hold the office of a prophet, uh, they're just not telling you the truth because that doesn't exist anymore. The supernatural gift of prophecy is still given to individual members of the church. You can read all about it, especially in 1 Corinthians 14. But it's a gift, not an office of leadership. As long as the prophecy agrees with the completed revelation of Scripture, we would receive it as a message of edification, exhortation, and encouragement. And so let's say you're in a meeting with believers or in some other uh, you know, format, and somebody says, well, I believe that God is saying this to the church or saying this to you. Well, we would receive that, but first we would examine it. We'd say, well, now, does this line up with what the Bible says? Because the Holy Spirit, who inspired the writing of Scripture is the same Holy Spirit who gives words of prophecy and he will not contradict himself. And, and so we judge it and as long as it lines up with Scripture, then it can become a tremendous encouragement or exhortation or edification. In a different but no less important sense, every believer is to speak for God and to speak forth the Word of God. The Apostle Peter, writing to everyone, says, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11. So he, he's indicating there, reminding you that all of your speech represents God to men and women. It is a speaking for God. You may not think about it, but people who know you're Christians, they believe that you're speaking for God. You are his spokesman on the earth by virtue of the fact that you say you are a Christian. And then Peter says in 2 Peter 1.19... He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. He's talking about God's written word, and he's saying that the entire word of God is prophetic in the sense that we are speaking it forth 
to men. It reveals God to men. And so you can't hold the office of a prophet anymore, and you may not be given the gift of prophecy, but all of us that are Christians do speak for God, and we do speak forth the word of God, and that with prayer is a good job description a good working job description of what we're about. So let's see how Abraham handled his assignment to pray and to prophesy. Verse 1, Abraham journeyed from there to the south, and he dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. At the very beginning of his walk with the Lord, Abraham had told this same lie when they went down to Egypt. The Pharaoh of Egypt, thinking Sarah was his sister, took her into his harem with the intention of marrying her. Now Abimelech does the same thing. By the way, I don't want to dwell on this, but just how attractive was Sarah? We usually think of a trophy wife as being the very young counterpart to an older man. Sarah is 90 years old when Abimelech goes weak in the knees for her. Man, she must have been some looker. Now, Abraham's failure tells us a few things. One thing it tells us is that as long as we are in these bodies, we will contend with what the Bible calls the flesh. The flesh is that inclination, that influence I still find at work in my unredeemed human body that prompts me to yield myself to sin. Another thing Abraham's failure tells us is that there can be particular sins I am more susceptible to than others. I should therefore know my weaknesses and strategize how to avoid putting myself into situations that might cause me to stumble. A lot of people think that as I mature in Christ, as you mature in Christ, that uh, you, you get to the point where you can then do pretty much anything you want because all the gray areas won't bother you. Uh, You know, in other words, maturity means that you have perfect liberty in every area and every gray area is okay to you, whatever it might be. That's just not true because you'll find that people who are extremely mature in Christ will still have an area of weakness in their life where they can be stumbled and that's just the way it is and they need to avoid that. And so, you know, if you're thinking that, gee, one day these habits that I used to have that used to hold me bound, I'll be able to return to them and handle them because I'll be so mature. That's not necessarily true. I don't know why you'd want it to be true, but it's not necessarily true. Uh, There are things that you're going to struggle with for your entire life that are going to be unique to you that might stumble you. And this helps when I'm dealing with another brother or sister If I say, hey, would you mind if I did such and such? And they say, well, yeah, actually I would because it stumbles me. I don't have to make a funny face at them and think, well, I thought you were mature. They are mature. It's just that this is an area that stumbles them and we don't want to stumble one another. And then finally, another thing I see here in Abraham is that spiritual maturity does not come automatically with age. Abraham had walked with God for a quarter of a century, but he was still at square one in what I would call a paranoia about being killed for Sarah. Uh, And so uh, Abraham was definitely failing. Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and he said to him, indeed, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. God says to him, you're a dead man. Now we take that to mean God was going to kill him. And indeed, in a few verses, we see that God had afflicted him in some way. Abraham is going to pray for him later on and he's going to be healed. But in a spiritual sense, 
The phrase, you are a dead man, is simply the declaration of a truth. Abimelech was already a dead man before he ever met Abraham. If you are not a believer, God has said to you and to everyone else, you are a dead man. In the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, God explains that you were born dead in trespasses and sins. You're born physically alive, and we say soulishly active, but you are born spiritually dead and separated from God. You can, however, be born again, born spiritually by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so he's not just telling Abimelech that his death is perhaps imminent because of his immediate sin. He's telling him that he was born dead and he needs to do something about it. Uh, As we'll see, God is stepping in personally and taking over the evangelism because Abraham is not doing it. Verse 4, but Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now, Abimelech thought he and his nation were righteous, and he claimed to have integrity, and he pointed to his innocence. Now, his integrity and innocence among men was commendable, but it doesn't render him justified before God. They are works of human righteousness that have no eternal value. He must be declared righteous by God if he is to be saved. Abimelech, by the way, is a title. It's like Pharaoh. He is the Abimelech of this people. He is here, therefore, representing his entire nation. What was true of him was true of them. You could therefore say that Abraham had been sent to Abimelech, to the people of Gerar, to reveal the grace of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He was God's missionary to them. And it wasn't really a bad assignment because the people of Gerar were actually pretty good compared to their neighbors. If you were here last week or you're familiar with chapter 19, you know that God just flamed Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. It's not the kind of place you wanted to visit because the men were pretty wicked. But here Abraham is among the people of Gerar, and though he doesn't have an eternal righteousness or a spiritual righteousness, Abimelech can say, hey, we're pretty good people, and we have integrity, and we do what is right. And so Abraham has a really easy assignment, but he still can't live up to it. He failed miserably in his mission. He brought Abimelech and his people under an even greater condemnation than they were already under. And so in verse 6, God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that, I, uh, that you shall surely die you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. I was wondering if this was the same dream or another dream on the same night or if it was on another night. It could be that Abimelech had to wait some time before he got this answer. I know that when I got saved, there was a period of time, a couple of days at least, I think, that I was in an absolute mental fog about my sin and my need for salvation. It's all that I could think about. It was what the Bible calls conviction, the conviction of sin. If you were saved later in your life, uh, you came under conviction of sin. You realized 
that you were a sinner. Not that you weren't a great person or you did bad things occasionally, but you, you really come under the understanding that you deserve to die and go to hell because God is convicting you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so Abimelech had been convicted of sin, shown his own insufficient righteousness to do anything about it, warned of coming judgment. Now he had a decision to make. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you have a decision to make because that's the work of the Holy Spirit in the world today to convict men of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come so that they will turn to Christ for salvation. Although God can use dreams or whatever means he so desires, he has chosen in this church age in which we live to entrust the good news about salvation to you and I who have believed on him. We are sent to pray for laborers to go out into the harvest to speak the prophetic word to them. Abraham failed. He not only kept quiet about God, he lied and concealed his own identity as a believer. So did Sarah. Do you and I ever fail keeping quiet, sometimes even concealing our true identity? Our reluctant but honest answer has to be sometimes yes. Now, what do you do? What's the solution? Well, the solution isn't to try harder or to make a bunch of promises to God. It's simply to ask for his help. You see, Jesus told his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit upon them, that he would baptize them, that he would give them the power they needed to be bold witnesses for him. In another place, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus encouraged believers to ask and seek and knock for the gift of the Holy Spirit, promising that God would not withhold him from you. And so as I understand this, it's certainly uh, there's, there's a, a sense of mystery to it and, uh, and all, but God is speaking to believers when he says, I want you to know that I'm going to give you more of the Holy Spirit. You can't even be a believer without the indwelling spirit, but then God says, now I want to pour him out upon you. I want to give him to you in full measure. I want you to ask and seek and knock and then believe that I promised you I would give him to you and then act on that promise. Uh, and that's the key. It's not to, not that there's anything wrong with going to seminars or, or recommitments or anything like that. But, you know, at this point, it, it isn't to revert to, you know, I can do this. I'm going to, you know, really try harder. It's to realize that you and I are utter failures apart from the power of God. The reason we fail is because we are failures and we're not depending upon God. And so God says, why don't you just ask me for the outpouring of my spirit? And then believe that what I've promised you, I have given you, and then walk in that power. And it makes all the difference in the world. If you read about the disciples, you know, uh, after uh, the book, uh, chapter 2 of Acts, and you see uh, them actually just kind of stumbling into spiritual situations. You know, they're having a prayer meeting, and, and the Lord just shows up in a powerful way, and people say, hey, what's going on? And Peter says, oh, well, uh, here's what's going on. And he's talking and he's talking and he's using the scripture and he's probably thinking, wow, Lord, this is pretty cool. I've never, this is great. And then he forgets even, you know, what he's doing. Finally, they interrupt him and say, hey, what do we do to be saved and be like this? He goes, oh, okay, I'll get to the altar call. I'll cut to the chase. And he tells him and thousands of people get saved. God still wants to do that kind of thing today in a big way, but also in a small way in our life. We just need to believe that he has given us the promise of his spirit. If you've been failing in your witness for Christ, ask him for the help he promised and by faith believe he is 
fulfilling that promise. Now, in verses 9 through 18, God is glorified in your faithfulness to pray and to prophesy. We're going to see Abraham return to a place of faithfulness. God still holds out to Abimelech that Abraham is his go-to guy. I might have given up on Abraham at this point. I mean, here's he's been a Christian 25 years, and he still can't figure out what he's supposed to do when he's in Gerar. But God says, no, Abraham's my guy. And he's going to pray for you and he's going to prophesy. And I love that. Simultaneously, God did use Abimelech to, approve, uh, to reprove excuse me, Abraham. We see in verse 9. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? Abimelech's question, what did you have in view, is insightful. The thing Abraham had set his view upon was what? His own safety and his own longevity. Abraham looked at the situation and he said, if I go into Gerar, there's a chance that they're going to kill me because my 90-year-old wife is a babe and they're going to want her and so I'm gonna, I don't want to die for my faith in Jesus Christ. So let's just tell this white lie. After all, you know, she is my sister in a certain way. And so, you know, I'll go with that. And so he was thinking about his own self-preservation. That's what he had set his view upon. He ought to have set his view upon Abimelech's lost condition. And so Abraham, going into that situation, going into that lost city, he just saw... We left him at the end of chapter 19 looking at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He sees what God has to do when people ultimately and finally reject the message of grace. And so he should have went into Gerar and he should have thought, I'm the missionary here. I'm sent to these people. There is inherent danger. They might kill me, but I have to tell them about God because no one else is here to do that. And their ultimate destruction, the, the destruction of this city and the cities of the plains and thousands of lives, maybe even millions of lives, far outweighs the fact that they might want to take my wife away from me uh, if they know she's my wife and kill me. And so that's what you have to have in view. So you and I, when we go out into the world, we have to have a different view of things. What do are, what are we set our view upon? Is it on self-preservation, on longevity, on prosperity, on whatever? Or is it on the fact that time is short, Jesus is coming, and people need to be ready for that? And so verse 11, and Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, they're going to kill me on account of my wife. But indeed she is truly my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place wherever uh, we go. Say of me, he is my brother. And so Abraham just flat out admits he feared what man could do to him when he ought to have feared what God must do to Abimelech and to his nation should they die without receiving Christ. Often it is some form of self-preservation that keeps us quiet. Maybe we're afraid we're going to lose friends or lose our job or in some way suffer loss, maybe even lose our life. Uh, but that is what causes us to uh, not give a true testimony 
of who we are in Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me also that Abraham indicated that everywhere they went, they were in the habit of playing this sister act. Uh, When we encounter this, we usually say, well, this is the second time he did this. And that's true. It's the second time it's recorded. But by his own words, he said, I told her wherever we go, tell people you're my sister. That's our cover story. And so he had been doing this for years. It's what biblical counselors might call a life-dominating sin. Now, I'm not excusing it, but it's interesting to me that these great men and women of the Bible were of like passions with us. I can be encouraged that God loves me every bit as much as he loved them, that there are no super saints, only saints. And so, again, I'm not excited for Abraham that he sinned and that he had this continual sin going on. But there is a strange sense of comfort because we look at people like Abraham or Moses, or maybe there's some people in your life who you look up to, nothing wrong with that unless you think that they're perfect in some way, that they don't struggle in some way. Maybe they've convinced you that they've got it all together. They only talk about all the spiritual things that they do, and you know they get up at 3 in the morning and they pray for 17 hours until 8 in the morning somehow. I don't know how that works out, but... And, you know, they have all these spiritual things going on. Whenever you ask them for counsel, they have an immediate answer for you, even though their own life, you don't know that much about their own life to know if if they're living up to that counsel. But it's always, you know, you're always being hammered with it. Well, you know, you should be perfect the way I'm perfect. And this is what you do about that. Uh, Again, we just need to be careful. We're all in this thing. We're all struggling. We all fail. We all fall short. Sometimes the best counsel you can give to a person is to say, I just, let's pray together. I'm going to pray for you. I don't know what to say to you. You know, there's a sense, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I'm going to. Uh, We talk about counseling. Counseling is really just discipleship. You realize that. It's just pointing people to Jesus Christ. You are almost always your own best counselor because you know everything about your situation. When people come in, sometimes they say, okay, here's what's going on. You can't tell a person what's going on in your life in 10 minutes or 15 minutes or an hour or 10 hours. Uh, You know, you're your own best counselor. And what a counselor can do is say, here's what the Bible says about these issues. And so, you know, let's lock into that. Let's pray together. Let's make sure that you're on board with what God's word says and all of that. And so uh, Abraham, he was just blowing it. He's the father of all those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, whether they're uh, physically Jews or spiritually Gentiles. And, And I'm not excited. I'm not happy that he was in sin, but it reminds me that he was a man of like passions with me, that he had struggles just like you have struggles today. All of you have some struggle that you brought in with you today. And I'm here to say that the same God who loved and restored Abraham loves you and wants to restore you to a place of service and faithfulness. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. I think Abimelech got saved. One reason I think that is his generosity towards Abraham and Sarah. To the couple that had almost cost him his life and the destruction of his entire nation, he extended generous hospitality. He gave them, as it were, everything. 
He gives them gifts for sure, but he says wherever you want to go and, and hang out, it's like the key to the city. Abimelech is giving out of grace to those who had wronged him. It sounds very much like a God thing to me. Then to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. Now, there's a lot of disagreement on how to properly translate verse 16. If you have a version that's not the New King James Version, you probably think I misquoted it right now because it's, commentators are all over the place. With some translations, it reads as a comfort to Sarah. With others, it reads totally as a rebuke to her. In some, like what I just read in the New King James, it sounds like both a comfort and a rebuke at the same time. Here it is in the King James Version. It says, Unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all others. Thus she was reproved. Now, by the way, that last word reproved can mean to show to be right or to be vindicated. And so I think Abimelech was being used by God to exonerate Sarah because even though she went along with this, it was her husband who was ultimately responsible. It was his idea. She was being a submissive wife. Seeing it that way, we can find a sweet little marriage devotional in this verse. The husband is to be a covering of the eyes of his wife. What are some of the positive reasons why you cover someone's eyes? Well, I thought about this. You cover someone's eyes when you're about to surprise them. My granddaughter does this now. She wants to show me something, and she asks me to close my eyes. And then she takes my hand. Now, don't tell her, but I peek because I don't want to be dr drug into walls and doors. You know, she doesn't have a real sense of how large I am behind her. I tried it once, you know. So uh, she wants to surprise me. You also cover someone's eyes when you want to keep them safe from being offended at something. Uh, there are times when we will cover her eyes because we don't want her to see something. Um, if you ever go to a, a movie that's for kids in the theater, there's always something that you don't want them to see in the things that lead up to the movie. There's some trailer that's been approved for all audiences that are totally immoral and, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. And so you cover her eyes. And so covering of the eyes, it's a, it's a really good thing uh, to keep people safe or to surprise them. And so I think what Abimelech is doing kind of in a prophetic way is saying the husband's role is to keep marriage and the family safe and surprising. And it does spill over into the family because he mentions all that are with thee. And it's observed as a pattern for others looking on. He says, and with all others. And you might note, too, that when Abraham was blowing it, Sarah's eyes were covered, but in a different and a negative way. She was essentially kidnapped and taken from her home and her family the way that, you know, you would kidnap somebody and put a bag over their head so they don't know where they're going. And so this covering of the eyes, you meditate on it. It's a really sweet uh, marriage devotional. And husbands especially, we need to take heed and take heart to what God is saying here about our role uh, in leadership in the home. Now, God restored Abraham and Sarah despite their failure. And in some ways, they were even better off than before they failed. Should you fail on purpose so that grace might abound? No, God forbid. Paul encounters this many times in his writings. He's been going through the book of Romans on Wednesday nights, but it's in the book of Galatians and elsewhere. Because Paul talked about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God and the faithfulness of God, people got the impression that 
well, then you're saying that people can do whatever they want. They can sin. And the more they sin, the better off they are because the more you see God's grace. And Paul would scratch his head and say, no, that's crazy. No one would think that. If you as a Christian, if I came to you and said, God will forgive you no matter what you do, is your first thought, whoa, hook me up with some sin because God has to forgive me, so I'm going to load up on sin. God forbid is the only answer to that. You have to think, I don't know if you're a Christian if you think that way. You must not know what it cost uh, at the cross so that God could make you that offer so that he could forgive you your sin both past, present, and future. And so we do preach a grace message. We don't put people under burdens. We don't put them under the law. We're not talking about legalism. Even this morning, Abraham gets busted, and then God says, now, okay, you're going to be faithful now again, and so I'm going to use you just as powerfully, maybe even more so than before. And you and I look at that and think, there's got to be more consequences in his life. What are the consequences? He gets more sheep. He gets more servants. He gets all the land he wants. I'm going to sin like that. No, that's not the point. The point is who God is. When I am faithless, God remains faithful. You need to know that. Not so that you will sin some more, but so that when you sin, you will return and run into the arms of a loving Heavenly Father. And if, that wasn't, if we don't preach this grace message, then we are failing to preach the gospel. And so Abraham prayed to God, verse 17, God healed Abimelech and his wife and his female servants and they bore children for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now commentators make the point that God wanted to make it clear that when Isaac was born, he was not the child of Abimelech. Even though Abimelech was supernaturally restrained from having relations with uh, Sarah, their relationship might have given the appearance of evil. No one would believe that they hadn't slept together. And so God made it clear to everyone that Isaac was not the child of uh, adultery by closing up everyone's womb. No one was having children. No one was getting pregnant during that time. Uh, so God is working to preserve uh, this uh, beautiful birth of Isaac. Abraham prayed for the first time recorded in this chapter. I say that he undoubtedly also shared with Abimelech many things about the Lord. You ever, you know, finally somebody finds out you're a Christian and you're a little bit embarrassed that you didn't witness to them prior, but now that it's out in the open, then you start to talk to them about the Lord. And so I think that's what uh, Abraham did. He probably, uh, if I was Abimelech, I'd have been interested in what he knew about Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham could say, well, here's the deal. My nephew Lot was living there and these angels came and, you know, and he had a real testimony about the judgment and the mercy of God. And so we would say that in the end, by the time you see Abraham at the end of this chapter, he's praying and he's prophesying. That's what he was sent in to do in the first place. Uh, he failed, but God brings him through a series of events to restore him. It's a picture for us of what in the spiritual realm prayer and prophecy accomplish. They bring new birth to dead sinners. God is glorified as men and women and children are changed through their contact with his word, delivered to them by his chosen instruments, you and I. As you re-enter the places in the world you've been strategically placed by God, when we go back to our garage this afternoon, consider these two things. Number one, God the Holy Spirit is available by faith if you will simply ask and seek and knock 
believing that God is a good heavenly father who will not withhold his spirit from you. And then second, pray for those with whom you have contact and then look for the opportunities that God gives to talk to them about eternal life. Let's pray together.